Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McClaus Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. One of the goals for this podcast is to speak with cultural creatives about the routes they've taken in their lives. They come from different backgrounds, different careers, some with clear, distinct paths, and others whose careers and lives have been more meandering. Connecting them all is how they molded the life that they wanted through the decisions they made. While the last episode focused on the food and gardening televisual world of Russell and Marion Marash, for this episode I sat down with Marilyn Cole Lowndes, who is best known as the 1973 Playboy Playmate of the Year. I first met her a few years ago when my partner here at Lady, Susan Wingett, was styling a story on Playboy Playmates of the past for New York Magazine. As a longtime aficionado of Playboy, I knew her centerfold, so I was unsurprised at her continued beauty, but pleasantly surprised by how wonderfully warm and lovely she was. From a small seaside town in England, Marilyn got her break as a bunny at the Playboy Club in London in 1971, before becoming the January 1972 Playmate of the Month and 1973's Playmate of the Year. A notorious babe, she enjoyed the finest success of the 1970s, including modeling for a Roxy Music album cover and an affair with Brian Ferry, before settling down with her longtime on-off love, Playboy executive Victor Lounce in 1984. While Playboy magazine was based around what young Hugh Hefner aspired to be, it was who Victor Lounce truly was. Urbane, witty, handsome, and a devilish Playboy, he started working as promotions director there in 1955, before rising to vice president. It was Lowndes who pushed Playboy to open clubs of their own. He managed the opening of the first in Chicago in 1960, and later went on to open and run the incredibly successful Playboy Casino in London from 1966 to 1981. In a romance that seems totally in keeping with those times, Lowndes and Cole first started dating in 1971, yet both continued their dalliances and relationships with others for many years. When they finally married, they had been on and off for 13 years, but then stayed happily married until his death last year. They lived between London, a Georgia manor house in Hertfordshire, and New York. Their life together allowed Marilyn to learn and grow culturally, eventually becoming a journalist specializing in boxing. I met with her in the fall, just a few weeks after Hugh Hefner's death. With the media flush with both positive and negative articles about him, I tried to question Marilyn about some of the allegations made against Hef. As you'll hear, her experiences with him and Playboy were strictly positive. What I appreciate so much about Marilyn's story is the agency she had in it. Her choice to get out of a dead-end job and write to the Playboy Club in London for work. Her choice is when and where to model, to follow her passions, no matter what was considered acceptable. Head to LadyWorld.tv to see a slideshow of images of Marilyn, including our controversial full frontal centerfold, and to sign up for our newsletter. Enjoy. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Mm, it was a pleasure. And it was, it's lovely to see you again. After Thank you. It was two years. I know, two years. How did you end up deciding to do that shoot two years ago? When they, did they approach you? and Playboy Promotions emailed and suggested that I be photographed for New York Magazine, revisiting the centerfold which I had done. I was Miss January 1972 and it was a pleasure to do so. It turned out to be more fun and fun sounds simplistic and trivial but it was it, it was fun and I was very struck by the professional uh, professionalism of it in the sense that um, you all were fantastic stylists. I remember the first thing I saw which pleased me, were rails of very, um, you know, beautiful, sexy, um, elegant, um, interesting clothes, which obviously I'm always drawn to. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I am here with girls of taste. <laughs> taste and style. And of course, the, 
The photographer immediately took charge. At my stage in life now, though, I, did, I do know what, what I want and what I like, and I had already decided that I would not show flesh. <laughs> and he looked rather disappointed. He said, well, there are these fabulous negligees that you can choose. Oh, no, no, definitely <laughs> not, definitely not. And again, being with the other playmates, you know, I had not met them. I don't think, I think maybe there was one girl I'd worked with before or been around the same era, but it was fascinating. And I think, again, what it, what it brought together was that sense of how special Playboy magazine and how we were always treated and how we are known to be playmates and not even former playmates. You know, Hefner always made the point that once you're a playmate, you are a playmate. You're not an ex-playmate. You're not a former playmate. You are always a playmate, you know, past, present, future. So you kept your role. You weren't too old to be a playmate. You were that person and you kept that identity. How aware of Playboy were you before you became not, a bunny? Not. I basically left Portsmouth. I was born in Portsmouth in the house that I was living in with my mother and father in um, Cassassin Street in Portsmouth. And in our house, basically, my father had been in the Navy, my mother worked in a bra factory. I'm one of three girls, the youngest, and it was considered to be a success if you had a job either in the civil service or working for a bank. That was the most we would aspire to. And I did both. However, I always knew there were f more horizons. I mean, we, we had a wonderful childhood along the beach, and it was not long after the war, so we were very conscious of the Second World War. Things were pretty dreary. They were still rationing books. However, I was a teenager during the 60s, and so my idols were Bieber, Barbara mm -hmm. Hulaniki. Um, of course, the music had exploded with the with the obvious Beatles, Rolling Stones, but there were also the Animals. And we used to have Chuck Berry, and um, a lot. Rod Stewart was only a very young man uh, singing with a band, um, Long John Baldry and the Steam Packet. So I think the taste in music and fashion. I was lucky enough to be 14, and I threw myself into it very happily. And there was Mary Quant. And so a big day out would be to go to London, to Bieber or Brighton. And we had programs called Ready, Steady, Go, Top of the Pops, with these gorgeous young women like Kathy McGowan and Sandy Shaw as a singer with the bob. So again, Vidal Sassoon changed everything with hair. Twiggy changed the image of models. And of course, I was lucky enough to be that age group to take part in that. Playboy was never mentioned, either in my house, nobody was a sub subscriber of Playboy magazine, I'd not even seen it. Um, however, by the time I was 21 and ready to leave home basically, a girlfriend of mine had gone to London, was working in an oil, for an oil firm, and she said, look Marilyn, come to live in London, and I said, how can I do that working at an office earning £12 a week? And she said, well, there is a place called the Playboy Club and all you need to do is smile and you can earn a lot of money. Well, in those days, she hadn't even been in a Playboy Club herself. So, but I had a, a, a hook and I had, there was one girl who used to come and visit Portsmouth 
and we knew that she was a bunny girl and we knew there was kudos to this and some glamour. She looked different, she was very well groomed, so I knew that much. Anyway, I applied by writing to the Playboy Club in London on Park Lane. I received a letter to say come for an interview, which I did. I didn't tell anyone in case I didn't get the interview. Bunny mother Lindy interviewed me in an apartment above the club, totally professional. She did say the one requisite was to bring a bikini. And she did say, because she interviewed me in a suite, so there was an, uh, an adjoining bathroom, she said, please change into your bikini, come out. And she asked me to turn around and then look at me and smile. And I thought, wow, Marilyn's right, you know, here we are, just smile. Obviously I got dressed and went home. And then I received a letter saying yes, you have been accepted as a bunny girl. Please report to the Playboy Club Stanhope Gate entrance, which was the back entrance, on uh, January the 4th, 1971 it was, at 9am. Had you done any modelling or anything Well, in Portsmouth, there was a fashion shop called Stevie, and Stevie was a very glamorous, rather old-style glamour in the sense of bouffant hair, eyeliner, rather tanned makeup. She was from up north, impeccably groomed. She had a green Daimler car with her name on it, Stevie in italics. Her boyfriend owned a pub, what we call a pub in England, and his name was Pete Salter. And Stevie was behind the bar at weekends in these fabulous dresses, more from the early 60s, late 50s. And she used to have her own goblet with, you know, her little gin and tonic in her own goblet with jewels, you know, beads mm -hmm. on that, and a long cigarette holder with Sobrani cigarettes. <laughs> and she had the perfect husky voice. Sounds amazing. She was amazing. Now when, so I used to go in there and she kind of spotted me and she asked me to model for her because she used to put on fashion shows in the local church halls, the guild hall, for her customers. So I was the young model. So I did have that experience of being on the catwalk in a church hall in Southsea. But that was it. Playboy Club sounds like a, quite a change from that. Huge change. And I didn't associate it with modelling because I literally went to be a bunny girl for the job. Mm -hmm. It was all about having a job, earning money and being able to live in London independently, which it did happen. Now again, when I st when you start as a bunny girl, you, you are a trainee bunny. You know, in other words, they section you off. I was a cocktail bunny, luckily, because I did not want to be a croupier. It was a casino, the London mm -hmm. Playboy Club. So I was very happy to be told you will be a cocktail bunny. We were handed a training manual, which had been devised by Keith Hefner. You have brother. Now Victor Lowndes had come to London to open this Playboy Club on Park Lane in 1966. By this time it was 1971 and we were given some a hand-me-down costume because they would not invest in a new one until you'd completed your training and they knew you were going to be seriously working there. And so I remember we were lined up for a mugshot for Chicago headquarters and I remember having a green satin costume on with someone else's name in biro ink in the cup, slightly ill-fitting. Of course, we were provincial girls. My eye false eyelashes were way too long. My hair was a bit tatty on the ends because I remember thinking when I met the bunny mother how absolutely she just glowed. Everything was so smooth. Her hair was smooth, her skin shone, her lips gleamed. And I thought, girls don't look like this in Portsmouth. 
they just didn't mm -hmm. and that's what it usually is you go to the big city to become that mm -hmm. to learn how to do that we were standing in a row being photographed and in came a man with a camera but it wasn't the photographer it happened to be Victor Lowndes UK1 there was also the resident photographer by this time this man had an American accent he had great presence he did turn out to be the boss and he turned to the photographer and suggested that he photograph me or test me for Playmate. Well, I did know that Playmate was the centerfold, but that's all I knew. Frank Habich was the photographer, he was German. He was very excited by this suggestion and he explained to me, he said, Marilyn, do you realize what an opportunity this would be? No, I said. He said, well, it would be $5,000 for a start. Now we're talking 1971. My mother's house cost $500. So I thought I could buy three. Because in the British culture, you always judge money by how much property costs. That's how we did it. So, of course, you know, that was the biggest temptation. And to this day, I know that was the draw. It was for the money. It wasn't for anything else at that point. I also had the sense to say yes to everything. I had good instincts. I knew this was for Playboy magazine. Apparently one other bunny girl before me called Dolly Reed, an English bunny by the way, a British bunny girl, she had been a playmate and none since her. So again, it was explained to me that this was a very special opportunity. Basically, Frank Habich took black and white test shots of me in a house in London, in Connaught Square, which turned out to be Victor's house. And the first thing I noticed, well, a butler opened the door holding two Pekingese dogs. He was Italian. His name was Antonio. I had been taken there in a silver, silver Cadillac convertible with red le leather lining. Victor's house had a magnificent art collection. Again, I didn't know who the artists were, but I knew they were something. And he had wonderful erotic art by Egon Schiller. He had Francis Bacon's. He had Max Ernst. Again, I didn't know what, who they were, but I knew it was all special, that this was a very sexy man because of his art, and there was the erotic feeling in the house, very sophisticated. So basically, the test shots were taken there, and there was one particular shot of me against a bookcase in daylight. It was next to the window in a bedroom in the house, and I was just standing full on straight, you know, standing against this bookcase. Fast forward, uh, the photographs were taken to Hugh Hefner in Chicago. I was then asked to fly and be tested further by their own photographers. Sadly, Frank Habicht was never really going to be in the picture. I didn't know that and I don't think he did, but they, Hefner only ever used staff photographers mm -hmm. for the centerfold. And that was the beginning of my journey of becoming Miss January 1972. It must have been quite trippy going from Portsmouth to suddenly going into... Yes, it was a small stop car. off in... Yes, it was and a small everything. stop from Portsmouth to London, straight to Chicago, basically. Mm -hmm. Did you actually work as a bunny at all? I did. I completed the training and we took it all very seriously. Mm -hmm. It was a serious job and we cared about it and we cared about doing it properly. So yes, I became a cocktail bunny and was quickly put on reception, which was a very nice thing because I didn't really want to work nights. So I luckily got the day shift on reception. That meant having a velvet, a special velvet costume made. Mine was burgundy velvet with gold trim. Mm -hmm. 
You, what was fabulous was that Victor and Hefner, they were all so creative that they allowed personality to come into the costumes. For instance, I worked with a bunny ginger, so she had a ginger velvet costume and it just suited her because she was a redhead, she yeah. was Irish. Mm -hmm. And then also they had the psychedelic costumes mm -hmm. and Scottish bunnies, there was Cathy MacDonald and Jan Ross, they were Scottish so they were allowed to have their costumes made in their own tartans, the MacDonald tartan and the Ross tartan. That's really cute. Well it's important yeah. because it meant detail and personalization and it, even though Playboy is a brand, those men, especially Victor, he knew how to make it even more special. Anyway, so I worked as a bunny, was sent to Chicago, further tested as a playmate, returned to the Playboy Club as a bunny, worked on the floor. It took 11 days for them to actually get that centerfold and Hefner kept referring, they tried different backgrounds, different poses, but he kept referring back to that first black and white shot that had been taken in, taken in London by Frank Habich and he basically then said, look, that's it. I want that. Don't show me anything more. Mm -hmm. That's the one I want. So Alexis Erber, who was apparently Hefner's favourite at the time, that's what he had to do. He had to reproduce that black and white shot in colour as a centrefold, which I didn't understand the technicality, but apparently it was difficult. Well, I was basically standing against the bookcase for 11 days. I was allowed to go home to sleep. And this was in... To the mansion. Was that in Chicago? In yeah. Chicago. They built the set at the top of the... Par the Playboy building in Chicago had been the... Colgate Palmolive building and at the very top of it was the chairman of the board's office I was told and it was oak panelled so they decided to build that set they put the bookcase there the Persian rug they had a fire burning and somehow well there was a fireplace there obviously so they placed the bookcase in front of the to one side of the fire roaring fire they had the Persian rug They'd obviously filled specific books, and there I was against that bookcase. But I was actually at the top of the Palmolive building. And you were the first full frontal playmate. They discussed that with you, that it was going to be a big deal? No, no, they didn't. However, because Hefner had seen the black and white shot in London, which mm -hmm. was full frontal, because I was against the bookcase, mm -hmm. and that had fascinated him, and he liked it, obviously. It just so happened at the time, again, it's all timing in life, there was something going on called the pubic wars mm -hmm. between Penthouse magazine and Playboy. Penthouse had become a serious contender, Playboy, and Hefner was taking notice of Guccione. Circulation of Penthouse was going up, Playboy was already very high. It was so Hefner was forced in a way to make a business decision about this and his instincts were not to do it. He didn't want to. This was not the romantic idea of a pin-up to him. Don't forget, for him it started with the Vargas girls in Esquire. So for him to show pubic hair on the centrefold was not his plan. However, the two together, I think seeing my black and white shot, he obviously liked that, and the fact that he was, having, he was in a way being pressured by, by Guccione's penthouse being successful, they all put their heads together. I think it was Spektorsky, Hefner, and whoever else, photo department, Gary Cole, Marilyn Grabowski, they were all part of it. They all discussed it, obviously. And, and they decided to go with me as the first full frontal. And how did you personally feel being totally nude? Did it bother you? Well, again, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a natural question for you to ask me and for anyone. And I was brought up in a very conservative home. Nobody was naked in my house. I'd never seen anyone naked, including my sisters, and they hadn't seen me naked. <laughs> However, 
I knew that even to become a bunny girl, you had to have a sense of exhibitionism. You know, you couldn't be a withering violet, couldn't be too shy, because you had to wear ears and a tail and a very sexy costume, so anyone who pretended to be coy, forget it. We knew we were going to be looked at. We knew most women want to be admired and most women want to be sexually alluring. It's a natural instinct and a feminine one and that's how it was. So yes, I, 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 was, I was that anyway, but then of course to pose naked was another story and I, I dealt with that by, first of all the money was the tag, don't forget there's money here. And secondly, I knew to go into the bathroom to disrobe, I went in as Marilyn Cole from Cassassin Street, I came out as somebody else. If you come out as who you are, you might be hunched over. You have to act in a way. And it, it just, and it came naturally to me anyway. And at that point, the first thing, really, real instinct I had was hoping that the photographer would not be disappointed. Imagine mm. the rejection. And I was lucky enough to be accepted and to be actually celebrated. How did your life change when it came out? Well, it came out the following year, so already, even as a bunny, I had started to get attention in London in the sense that all bunnies had attention in the Playboy media. I mean, not just in the media in general. The UK media at the time, they loved Playboy, they loved the bunnies. Bunnies were in the papers nearly every day, doing different charity events, or just if a gorgeous bunny had come in from Sussex, the Sussex Evening Post would want to photograph her. It was a it was a very special and glamorous job at that time, and so I knew there was going to be media press, and um, I'd sort of become used to it because I'd had a lot of tension in in Chicago with all the photographers, mm -hmm. with the promotions, with knowing that this issue was coming out. I had written some articles for magazines like Esquire and GQ. And I reread one the other day, and I basically said, my life changed when I became publicly pubic, when a man sent me lilies from Hawaii every week, another man offered me dry, free driving lessons of articulated lorries, and also, whenever I flew transatlantic, the air stewardesses would politely, politely ask if I would like to visit the captain in the cockpit. <laughs> because in those days, before 9-11, that used to happen. I was still only 21, 22 years mm -hmm. of age, so life was, it was not too serious. The reaction was amazing, really, because it sold seven million copies. And then, of course, I became Playmate of the Year, which went another bumper check. More, more gifts, more prizes, more attention, and some more modeling jobs. Then I started to model. I was a Roxy Music cover girl, Stranded. I did the Wonder Bra ad, which at the time Wonder Bra was it in the way of lingerie. Mm. I've read rumours that you and Brian Ferry had an affair. Is that we did? You've Why wouldn't been a big we? Fan. Yeah. Why wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, again, no one was married. I had fallen in love with Victor by then, actually. Okay. Yeah, but Victor was the quintessential and real life playboy, and didn't try to hide it. Mm -hmm. He had beautiful, identical twin playmates living in his house, and several different girlfriends and you either entered his life or you didn't. I mean, you didn't try and change anyone, I didn't. And equally, I had boyfriends, and yes, that was the way it was, and I'm glad we did. When I read about those times, and sort of the way that people, I think, were so open with their sexuality, it seems so alien, even to now. Does it? Well, why has it changed? Was it AIDS that changed? It probably is, in a large way, 
AIDS and I think just when you talk about how you were in love with Victor but he had all these other partners and you didn't try and change him, I think that you a lot You didn't call them partners. Girlfriends or... Yeah, why, why even the, the, the word partner is so cold, it's so asexual, mm -hmm. it's so unattractive. A partner was always a business partner. You didn't have that in those days. You were a girlfriend or a lover. And when did you get together with him more solidly? Or what was well, that sort of much I mean, later? Uh, well, Victor and I started dating, as I say here in America, in, the, in October 1971. Okay. And, um, but I was in love with him from the word go. But, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we didn't get married for 13 years. <laughs> But he respected me and he respected women and he also let me be me. That's the key to life. I read in one interview with you that you, you said that becoming a playmate was the most liberating chapter of your life, both emotionally and yeah, it was. financially. Yeah. Well, but, certainly finance made it mm -hmm. more significant, actually. But also, when I started working at the Playboy Club with those, those other bunny girls, it was liberating because I had worked in the civil service for the Ministry of Defence and I'd worked in a bank. Mm -hmm. Well, you you know, it's a, it's a totally different world and you don't express yourself whilst you're at work in the, in the Ministry of Defence, working in the dockyard. I mean, you're not allowed to express yourself or, or in any of that field, really. Um, so then you go to somewhere like Playboy and we were, you know, music was very important and that's how Victor and Hefner got together, you know. Mm -hmm. For the, with the Mabel Mercer music that Victor played for Hefner and he said yes play play that as write about that lady for, for my magazine that's how Victor's career with Playboy started yeah. this is very important because Victor before he met Hugh Hefner Victor was coming to New York working for his grandfather in a, in a company called Silent Watchman and Victor just came upon a club called the RSP in the West 52nd Street area and he was just mesmerized by a resident singer there called Mabel Mercer, who turned out to be English. She had attracted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. She'd become a cult figure, and Victor had great taste and style. He used to walk around with the New Yorker magazine in his pocket as a 12-year-old. He was brilliant, and he'd been gone to University of Chicago at the age of 16. So this was a very unusual young man anyway and extremely good looking. So he would go every night that he was here in town in New York to listen to Mabel singing the likes, singing songs of Cole Porter, Gershwin, Jerome Kern, and Victor would take pretty girls to listen to Mabel, and if they didn't understand her or get Mabel, he used to send them home in a cab. That's how important it was to him, the taste and style. So, um, and he, he always told the story that he, that he had a bit of cash in his pocket, so he decided to take Mabel Mercer to Chicago as, on a gig, and he promoted her at a nightclub uh, called the Blue Angel one night, and he had his friend tape it, and then Victor was leading the bachelor life in Chicago, giving parties, and one of his guests said, can I bring a friend of mine? He's just started a new magazine. And Victor said, sure. So this man, this young, another young man, he was only 26 years of age, came to Victor's party and of course it turned out to be Hugh Hefner and that magazine turned out to be the first issue of Playboy 
we're talking about 1953-54, and Victor played this tape of Mabel Mercer singing, and Hefner said, yes, she is great. Why don't you write about her for my new magazine? And that was the beginning of their very long, successful career. And in a way, it was because of Mabel Mercer and the songs that even a club happened, because Victor was very instrumental in the uh, birth of the Playboy clubs. Well, so it was about music, yeah. and it was about the sensibility of those young men. It wasn't, ju it wasn't about sex. At that point, it was about the romance of the lyrics, which of course lead to sex. Yeah, it was about a total sort of sophisticated world that didn't really, that no one had written about, especially for those kind of men. Like good cocktails, good food, like a nice, beautiful apartment, the good, you know, yeah. having the right stereo equipment to listen to the music, to yeah. the seduction of it with yeah. the beautiful woman. Yeah. And I think. But with taste and style, yeah, taste and, and i.e., Mabel Mercer. Mabel Mercer, the, was the other night you went with the tribute. Well, that. a beautiful thing happened here in, New, in Manhattan last Sunday in the Laurie Beachman Theatre because Victor passed away in January and because he'd been a great patron of the arts in, in many, many ways, producing plays and movies, he made the first Monty Python movie, brought them to America, he helped with Roman Polanski's Macbeth, but at the core and at the very beginning it goes back, all roads lead back to Mabel Mercer mm -hmm. singing the, the American Songbook and so on Sunday, the gorgeous cabaret singers who have been in my life for the last 46 years gave a beautiful tribute to Victor. They called the show I'll Be Seeing You. Katie Sullivan, Mark Nadler, Joyce Breach, Daryl Sherman, Andrea Marcovici, Maud Magar, Jeff Hanna, creme de la creme of Americans cabaret singers put on this gorgeous show for him. And it was through the Mabel Mercer Foundation? Yes, because Victor, again, the Mabel Mercer Foundation, Victor was a great contributor, mm -hmm. and he even had someone sculpt Mabel, so they have that sculpture of her in the mm -hmm. office, because play, we owed so much to Mabel, mm -hmm. and, and Victor promoting her in that day and meeting Hefner, it was just how things played out. And so to this day, and now Katie Sullivan runs the Mabel Mercer Foundation, but it was a very, it was a totally personal tribute to Victor. That's lovely. Yeah, and again, it takes you back to, and it makes you realise how important music and sensibility is in in every which way. And it was at the heart of Playboy. And I feel like that sort of man that Playboy cultivated has been lost. You know, and I think at some point I feel like Playboy lost its way. There's nothing has fallen in its path that is so much about appreciating the good life and living the good life in all aspects. I think that's why so many people look back to those vintage Playboys. They can see some magic that it doesn't seem to exist now. It's like I you agree. opened up in here. I know. Wow. In, in most media, actually, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just Playboy. Don't you find it in most? No, I, I totally agree. Yeah. It's lost its sophistication and mm. culture. And the detail. Yeah. And really the passion, mm -hmm. actually, isn't it? And of course it's what to do with success. And Playboy was hugely successful. They had opened about 25 clubs. They had a club hotel in, Chicago, uh, sorry, in Jamaica outside Chicago in Lake Geneva, one here in Great Gorge, outside New York. Now the thing was that Victor Lowndes went to Playboy, in, opened the Playboy Club in London on Park Lane and decided to make it a casino and that was the key to their huge profits mm -hmm. right up until 
they lost the casino licenses in 1982. It was a very bad business decision on Hefner's part. They went on to lose their licenses after firing Victor and his deputy Bill Gerhauser, and they fired and they lost their licenses by proving foreign control in Great Britain, the very thing they shouldn't have done, which was a tragedy. It played out like a Greek tragedy. And when you lose your golden egg, mm -hmm. no, the goose, yeah. when you lose the goose, very hard to come back, very hard to come back because those casino gambling profits allowed Playboy magazine to have the best of everything and the clubs, the clubs had naturally sort of petered out here in America, I think, by the late 70s. They were less fashionable, but the casino profits in London allowed them all to continue. So I think it was a struggle after they lost their gaming licenses because of the bad business and legal mm -hmm. decision, nothing to do with Victor. I think that was very hard for them and eventually it, it's, I'm not sure what control is left. I think they've been trying to keep up with the changes going on. Well, Hefner always said that to me. I, I interviewed him for Esquire when he was 70, 77. And I was, I said, you know, I'm quite surprised, F, that you have centerfolds with piercings and tattoos and even cosmetic surgery. And he said, well, why would you be surprised? Playboy's always reflected the time that we're in. Mm -hmm. And that's how young women are these days. You know, and cosmetic surgery said it's great if it enhances their beauty, so be it. But of course, you know, and uh, piercings or tattoos are a personal taste. Everything is a personal taste, but for me, it, it just was not so glamorous. I think what had been so appealing about most of the centerfolds, that they were girl next doors, but like the most ultra yeah. gorgeous, gorgeous, sexy girl next door, but you could still imagine that you would know them yes. and that they would be the prettiest girl you'd seen yes. in town. Yes the girl that everyone wanted to date, that's what the appeal was. Yes, definitely. And the way that they were photographed, it was kind of usually sort of funny, like often quite yeah. funny, yeah. cute. And later on, when they were trying to compete with much more overt magazines into the 90s and then with the internet, and everyone's grey tan, bleach blonde, fake... Pamela Anderson. Yeah, it loses that appeal. Individuality. Mm -hmm. They all look the same. Everyone's personal choice in how they yeah. want to look. But I just found that over the years, that as a woman, I've looked at the later issues and not they're not as... I, I love seeing a beautiful yes, woman and just yes. sort of admiring her energy. And yeah, it but it's the same in the acting world. Yeah. It's the same in the movies. I mean, I was brought up looking at Elizabeth Taylor in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Sophia Loren and Rita Hayworth as Gilda and Ava Gardner, one of the most beautiful women ever. So for me today, who am I going to look at? Never mind the playmates, think about that. What have you been your feelings over the years with all of the, the sort of hatred directed towards Playboy and how they changed? Well, I, I don't, I, you know, I want uh, hatred directed to Playboy. You mean hatred, I mean, from, from women? Yeah, from feminists. And yeah, women. I was on the radio in London, Radio 4, where after Hefner died, they asked me to come on the Radio Today program, and um, which is apparently a popular, sophisticated show. I was quite amazed that I was being asked the same questions yeah. 46 years on, 2017. And not just asked the same questions, but from a, a man, John Humphreys interviewed me, and he actually said, weren't you embarrassed in front of your family being photographed or, you know, being published nude in a magazine? Really, I think, what would you all like? Would you like me to have been tarred and feathered? I think it's pathetic. And also, 
Another, uh, British journalists are pretty bad. They're lazy, they don't do research, they just go by their own instincts and emotions, which is not journalism. He actually quoted a journalist called Sarah Vine in England who had written an article saying that Hugh Hefner's legacy is toxic and that how sad that in today's world family and friends don't count for much and, you know, it seems to be, be more important how you look in a sequin thong. So that was quoted to me on a radio live show and I immediately said, first of all, Hugh Hefner had all his children with him on his 77th birthday in the Playboy Mansion. And I wrote about that. His two children from his first marriage, two children from his second marriage. He was on his sofa, his couch, his sofa, with his three blonde girlfriends. Everybody was in that room that night singing happy birthday to that father who was a grandfather. How many people can say that at the age of 77 and be so open and honest in their lives? How many people who have had divorces and when the weddings come along, they're all terrified because someone's not talking to this one, that one. That wasn't the case with Hugh Hefner or my husband, Victor Lowndes. And on both of their deathbeds, they were surrounded by friends and family. That's very important. Yeah. That means they led their lives properly and with truth, with truth and honesty. And I declared on the radio, it's dishonest journalists who are toxic. I mean, I think they were very honest about what they were doing, and you either accepted it or you didn't. And the, I'm sure the people who didn't accept disappeared a long time out of And they didn't lives. do anything bad. I mean, so I what are these feminists trying to say? What are they trying to do? You know, in the couple of days after Hitler's death, I was reading all of these articles back and forth. Boring, tedious. And a lot of women kept bringing up the fact that there's been complaints against him about sexual misconduct over the years. And Has there? I didn't know about that. What sort of sexual misconduct? That there was one by Linda Lovelace that her manager at the time pimped her out and to Hef and that Hef gave her quaaludes and sodomized her. That was Linda Lovelace? Yeah, Linda Lovelace. Who wrote a book, and that's it. There were no charges, this was just a woman. There was a book a couple of years ago when one of the Bill Cosby women said that she got raped by Bill Cosby at the Playboy Mansion mm -hmm. and that Hef yeah. was involved. Well, he wasn't. He would you, never have been. You read all... The, that's yeah. what people keep throwing out, yeah. these various yeah. allegations. Well, I mean, we're in a climate now yeah. where... That's that's the thing. Yeah. That's like sort of the current climate. Yeah. But there's nothing against Hugh Hefner personally. Not, no criminal charges. Not, no criminal charges. No. There's one long article on Vice that's like listing various different times that playmates have said things and Holly Madison when after she got out of the mansion said but they're basically controlled. She lived there for seven years. I know. It's nothing you to do with choice. the Hugh Hefner I knew. Nothing to do with with my truth or his truth or I mean, you know, she lived there seven years. I met Holly, I was the first one to interview her, actually. Mm -hmm. He brought her in when I was interviewing Hefner for Esquire. So he went and he got Holly and he kept brought Holly Madison in to study at the mansion. And I think she said this is the first time I've ever been interviewed. And I said, that's nice. And, uh, you know, she was one, a newcomer to the mansion and to Hefner's life. And apparently she lived there for seven years. So I rest my case. I guess I was bringing it up just to wonder how different your experiences were with Well, totally Hefner different. I didn't live in the mansion. Yeah. But your interactions with him were always positive. Yes. Okay. I mean, we were living in a very dangerous climate and nothing to do with my life, Victor's life. And as far as I'm concerned, Hefner's life, mm -hmm. really. After you were the Playmate of the Year, did you continue modelling? No, because no, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. And in a way, it was because it wasn't something I was very serious about. Things happened to me. Things just came at me and they were available and I did what I wanted to do. But I didn't channel it into a profession, which probably I should have done. 
and at the same time my figure you know no one would look at me as a, a fashion model I was a very successful glamour model I was and um, but beyond that I didn't actually do beauty work and then it changed and then it became very fashionable to have those women at my period you know like Cindy Crawford and you know then they did become huge supermodels I'm not saying I was could have been a supermodel I'm just saying climate changed you know when I was modeling you had to be very thin to be a fashion model and that did change didn't it well then I worked um, in fashion for someone called Philip Green and um, I worked he before he was famous and, and infamous because he is he opened a little shop in Conduit Street selling cut price designer clothes and I worked very happily there for two years enjoyed it a lot what was and the name of that shop? it was called 41 Conduit okay. Street and it was a success and then of course we know what happened to Philip he went on to own Oxford Street basically and then of course he, he's been involved in the recent scandal about BHS and everything but that's what I did and then Victor came and found me and we got married and that was 32 we got married in 1984 so it's 33 years we would be married last June yeah so I've, I've you know how lucky was I that that I got on the train that day from Portsmouth with a little bikini in my handbag and dared go to be a bunny girl. How how lucky was I and how clever was I? To have this amazing life just because you knew that there are more opportunities out there for you. I think you have to have a strong sense of yourself. Mm. Which, and yeah. you went, at what point did you get into journalism? Well, that happened when I came to New York again. Another, it's always been America that's liberated me. We came here, Victor bought the apartment in Manhattan, and I decided to go to Christie's to do an art history course. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is the best thing. Sitting being lectured by the one, the best professors really in, in America would come and, and lecture us ladies. We were all ladies of a certain age, socioeconomic group to pay to do it. And then we'd go and have lunch on Madison Avenue in the on some of the bistro and then we'd go up to the Metropolitan Museum or MoMA or the Guggenheim to look at the painting that we'd been taught about that morning. So I thought, this is heaven. This is just marvellous. And, and then I decided to take it one step further and I joined Marymount College here mm. in Manhattan to do art history. That was more serious, obviously. I did it for a couple of terms. But within that was a course called Critical Thinking. I loved it and it meant doing essays. I was lucky enough to know Leroy Neiman. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do a biography. I went to interview Leroy in the Hotel des Artistes where he had lived and had a studio and he was you know most artists have a fabulous sense of style themselves visually they're they're not they're not hippies in a garret garret they are very stylized and Leroy was you know rather Salvador Dali with his moustache mm. he always smoked the best Cuban cigars he always had um, cravats and very alluring anyway he gave me an interview and then who I knew came into play because a friend of mine introduced me to Trish Harty who is the editor of Irish America magazine. And I knew Deanna Dempsey, who was married to Jack Dempsey, the uh, America's boxing legend. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed Deanna about Jack Dempsey and his Irish roots, and that was the first time I was published, and it mm -hmm. went from there. And then you ended up doing quite a lot of boxing. I did the boxing articles, yeah, because I was fascinated with that world. I mean, again, it's the true, it's the passion that always draws me. With Victor, it was all about passion and celebration—not just celebration, but it really is an appetite for life and curiosity. And it's the same with boxing, mm -hmm. you know, the passion and uh, the danger and and taking risks and the human journey of a fighter and how his cut man and his manager and his trainer 
how they cherish that fighter that day they put him in the ring on his own it's very special now I'm older I've changed and I've, I'm now wondering about about whether it should actually be allowed and you know for safety reasons yeah, yeah. all those things because mm, I've seen fighters actually injured and then subsequently die so as you get older well, I used to go to bullfights even my tango hobby, that's about passion. I, mean, I think that that's a really good way of living your life, is yeah. following the passion. Yeah. So what's next for you? Hopefully continue with the appetite for life. And it's always to do with family and people. It's always back to people, for me, always. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Marilyn Cole Lowndes. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with directors, designers, and many more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week.